0: Amen. How y'all feeling this evening? (laughs) Amen. That's what's up. So tonight, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter four, we're going to be in verses eleven through Um, sixteen. Y'all gonna kill me for this, but forgive me in advance. Y'all just sat down and got comfortable with it. Would y'all stand with me for the reading of God's word? I ain't gonna read the whole chapter like I had planned because y'all brothers did a great job. Holding down that baritone and bass line during them hymns. so I want to read um, Ephesians 4:11 through16. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into the word of God for this portion of our time in the gathering. And the word of God said, "And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints excuse me, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we have gathered. We pray that you would open our hearts, that, Holy Spirit, you would allow us to walk in sensitivity, that you would correct, that you would comfort, that you would provide clarity, and that you would mobilize every one of us to not just be hearers of the content from your word that we will be recipients of over the next 24 hours, but rather we would also be doers, Father God. So may we not turn a deaf ear, May we embrace conviction. May we embrace brokenness so that we can see the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of our Savior who is patiently molding us and shaping us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, jumping right in the middle of a book and then in the middle of a chapter is obviously a challenge. And tonight, in my portion, we'll be talking about passing the baton of ministry. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, that is the hinge verse because we know Paul has been hammering sound doctrine from everything from the Trinity's involvement to our very salvation to the process of what it looks like to be this new ethnicity known as the one new man, the body of Christ that the work of Jesus has obliterated every wall of segregation that man has built to ostracize and segregate ourselves from each other, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's gender, whether it's social class, that, that Paul is now saying all of this heavy content that you have just received. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And basically at this point, the doors of the church are open. In this hinge verse, now we are called to mobilize, to live the reality of everything that has just been told that is ours because of Christ. So in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, he's laying the foundation for unity, which is evidenced by Christ's work in destroying all those walls of segregation that we read about in chapters 2 and 3. And the unity of the body is to serve the onlooking world as a resemblance to of the unity within the godhead who redeemed us. Peter O'Brien talks about verse 7 in chapter 4 being a transition where Paul shifts his focus because he laid the foundation for unity and now from verses 4, excuse me, 7 through 10, he talks about what this unity looks like with all the diverse pieces that Jesus has brought together to make up his bride, the church. You see, we recognize in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is speaking of Jesus Christ giving us the gift of grace, the gift of salvation that we recognize back in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. But then in verse 8, he says, therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is where it starts really starting to get a little bit more interesting because now he's turning up the flame to boil a little bit more because he loosely quotes Psalm 68, 18. The language of Psalm 68, 18 is a victorious king who has just won the battle. He is now enjoying the spoils of victory. And so what it is talking about is Jesus is the conquering king who defeated death, hell and the grave. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the one that Is the head of the church, everything that we see that is his positional reality at the closing of Ephesians 1. He's that dude and he's walking in that dudeness. And what we see here is that he is the conquering king and he is giving the spoils to his church. So if it's the gift of grace that Jesus has given us, that's salvific. So it means that Jesus saves sinners and Jesus gives saints to his church. We are the ones who are the spoils of his suffering that we read of in Isaiah. It was our soul. We are his trophies of grace. We are the reward of our Savior's suffering. And then he gives us to his church as his own personal gifts. Every man and every woman in the local church is a gift sent from Jesus. Now, I'm pretty sure you got a Rolodex of people that challenge you, that are frustrating. you like, "Uh, bro, you don't even know old girl in my church. You don't know Deacon so-and-so who be handing out the butterscotch. You don't know that dude. He a gift? Hey, if he's a regenerate member in the body of Jesus Christ, and if she's a regenerate member, yes, they are a gift personally sent by our Lord to our local church. As it relates to the passing of the baton, normally we think of that and we think, of a relay race. We think, okay, four people on a relay race and they run their race and they hand the baton and they kind of fall back and cross their fingers and wait to see, did we place, did we medal, did we win? I kind of want to get away from that analogy and I want to go more towards an analogy where it's, think of Jesus in the upper room when he's breaking the bread and instituting the Lord's Supper. And he shares the bread with all of his disciples whom he was going to establish, according to Ephesians 2.20, as the foundation of the church. And the passing of the baton is not passing a little stick and a part of a race, but rather it's, it's Jesus breaking his body to give to his body. And we think of that symbolism and it's breaking the work of the ministry and sharing and making the priesthood of all believers a part of the process of doing the work of ministry. So I believe the main point from this passage as it relates to the passing of the baton of ministry is that normal pastors can begin the work of passing the baton early on in their ministry when their self-awareness leads to solidarity That results in sustainability. So let me run that back one more again. Normal pastors can begin the work of passing the baton early on in their ministry when their self-awareness, that's point one, leads to solidarity, that's point two, that results in sustainability, that's point three. I'm Southern Baptist, alliteration, boom, let's go. Self-awareness. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. So Paul jumps in and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. So Paul is identifying gifts that Christ has given and the way that he has phrased the giving of Jesus. It is a once and for all action. He has given these gifts to his church, the organism, to be a long-lasting gift that has residual effects to continue on and continue on and continue on. Paul also identifies these leadership giftings that he has given to the local church that they basically would provide a lighted pathway for maturity in a dark world. So you think about even when you're on an airplane and you have an early morning flight or a late night flight, they shut off the lights, but those glow-in-the-dark lights come on to give you a pathway to know where the nearest exit is. Or when we go to the movie theaters and the, 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 the lights go down low and you see those little orange lights on every row and it's a lighted pathway to let you know how to get to the exit or how to maneuver in a dark theater. Well, in the same way in a dark world, I believe that these gifts serve as a lighted pathway to what maturity in Jesus looks like. So this phrasing actually identifies four giftings, not five. The shepherd teacher is understood as the same gifting grammatically and linguistically. And in our day, these, to be, these are to be understood as giftings, not offices, except for the shepherd teacher because of parallel passages such as Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. So briefly, let me kind of just walk through these four giftings. Number one, you have the apostles. Now, our church fathers have holistically embraced the idea that apostolic succession was not the filling of a vacancy whenever an apostle died, but rather a continued alignment to the teaching that the apostles instructed and they then forehanded down and handed down and handed down. And we see these in sacred writ today. So they remained aligned with the doctrine of those who followed Christ. So in our day, this would be seen as one who is a sent one or a missionary. And I think we can use the attributes of the giftings to see that these individuals may be visionaries, pioneers, or revitalizers in a dying work. We have prophets, these are fourth, F O R T H, fourth tellers of truth as God has revealed it in general and specific revelation, who consistently leverage the revelation of God to call humanity away from sinfulness and towards the holiness of God. Prophetic attributes of a gifting may be strong commitments to worship prayer, spiritual warfare, justice, but also having an incarnational witness and seeing this as a chief responsibility of the local church in their immediate community. Specifically in metropolitan or urban communities, Pastor Chris, Chris Books from Detroit, in his book Urban Apologetics, actually says there's six areas of focus that churches in those complex settings need to be very prophetic in. Prophetic in the sense of calling society to see what God says about these specific issues. Number one is economic fairness. Number two is educational equality. Number three is immigration reform. Number four, the sanctity of life. Number five, women's rights. And then finally, religious liberty. Evangelists, these are sanctifying souls who possess a burden for lost souls. And some of their attributes may be a God-given, unique ability to communicate the gospel with clarity that the Holy Spirit leverages to give aha moments to non-believers. To recognize, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Christ is the only qualified Savior. What must I do to embrace Christ? They also mobilize others to share the gospel and to know how to share the gospel, and they desire to build relationships with the lost. Then we see our shepherd teachers, and these are saints who are pastoral in their relationships while teaching and applying God's Word in their lives. The attributes of this gift set may be compassion and patience and love, the the idea that they're continuously teachable. In addition to this, they have the ability to effectively communicate, communicate content from God's Word. And again, since this is an office this gifting has a nuance of a biblical framework that others don't because we see these in parallel passages. So, over the past 10 years of pastoral ministry, I've developed a conviction that upholds these four giftings when they are present in both the leadership and the laity of the local church, it provides a well lit pathway to maturity in Jesus. So, I'm going to be honest full disclosure to me, success. In ministry is not budget building and bodies. All right. It's not money, mortar, and masses. That's not success. Because any pastor will tell you, more people is more problems. It's more issues, more counseling, more backstory, more nuances, more complexities, more issues with specific aspects of doctrine. There's all kinds of issues when it comes to people. I remember when I was younger and they would tell me ministry would be amazing if it wasn't for the people. And I used to be like, man, that's so cold-blooded. And then I became a pastor. And then I'm like, whoever told me that when I was nine, like, get get that man a raise because that brother was on point with it. So I understand that. But I say that tongue-in-cheek, but in all honesty, I think success is just faithfulness to Jesus, man. It's just being faithful to Jesus, See, self-awareness has freed me from recognizing I'm not all for these gift sets. I'm not. Jesus hasn't wired me to be the LeBron, all right, of, of, of the church. I'm just not. And that's akin before he was with the Lakers but with the Cavs, all right? So just want to make sure I qualify there right quick. But I just know that the way God has wired me, it's, it's apostolic in the sense of vision. Big vision casting, exciting people, but when the devil's in the details, Damon don't need to be in the details because that's how the devil gets into the church. It's because I'm sitting here doing stuff that I'm not gifted at, and I'm robbing people of opportunities to be empowered, to be freed up, to lead in their giftings. And secondly, I'm an evangelist. And so when I look at that and I put that in the context of a church plant or a small church or a revitalization All three of those settings I have faithfully served in. I've never pastored a church with a membership over 200 people. Never. And it's been deeply encouraging because even when we were approaching 200, our nine elders that I was one of was like, we got to get more elders if we get more people. Because to be deeply involved in the lives of people is not just going to happen behind a pulpit. We understand that. That's what makes the normalcy of the pastorate something that I recognize. It's not when I catch my feelings, I want a pastor. No, Jesus has said this is a calling, this is a privilege. You crucify your flesh in order to do this so that Christ may be exalted and be seen at work, not the dude that opens up the scriptures and talks. And so I've had to imperfectly model. The giftings in which I am weakened in those small church settings when there is no other staff, when there are no other leaders. And you know what? That is draining and that is exhausting and it is frustrating because then when I come to sermon prep and it's Thursday, I'm tapped out. I'm worn out. I'm frustrated. And I'm not going to preach somebody else's sermon because that's like wearing somebody else's drawers. I'm just being honest. And our people in our church don't need to hear what a podcast dude said. They need to hear from someone living amongst them that looks up and says, this is what Jesus is doing. Let us not forget. And so there's that tension, the lack of energy, the lack of zeal, the lack of sexiness, the lack of romance. But you know what? Even as I've been privileged to be married for 15 years, I have not enjoyed every day of the last 15 years of marriage. Does that mean I want to file for divorce? No, but it means that I can be real, and I can be honest, and I can say that I go to 1 Peter 5 and say, Jesus, am I doing this under compulsion, or have you legit called me to this? And until until Jesus says, no, bro, now you're moving in your flesh and it's under compulsion, I have to suck it up. I have to vent, and then I got to put my hands back on the plow and keep it moving, one square inch at a time. So as I look at this, I think I have prayed Jesus send men and women to our church that have these other gifts as your gifts to this local church. And brothers, sisters, he always does because he's building his church. Not me. He's building his church. He knows what the needs are, and it's not based on my weaknesses. It's based on his desire for the work to be faithfully completed in our area of the world that he's called us to live on mission together as his body for. So normal pastors, it will do us well to recognize our giftings and be self-aware. And that also by default allows us to recognize where we're not gifted and be encouraged by that. That you're not the one-stop shop. That you're one of many saints that are faithfully Loving Jesus day after day. And as you recognize that level of self-awareness, pray. And then as Jesus begins to send gifts, develop them and empower them for leadership and laity. See, I'm in that process of of breaking the bread and sharing the ministry with other gifted men in the local body that I say, man, I can see you living out the qualifications. What would it look like to be in candidacy? And then what would it look like to be in training for ordination a year after that? Like, what do your wives think? Let's get them together. What do we think? How do we get to know each other? How do we create a culture of vulnerability where we have to learn to volunteer content? rather than have people probe in our DMs or in our Facebooks, but to rather say, hey, I'm going to bring forth my sin struggles. I'm going to create a culture of shared participation of vulnerability, that I'm going to take the risk of opening up my sin struggles to you so that you will not be caught off guard by a secret affair. You will not be caught off guard by a separate life that you had no idea about, and I successfully played the hypocrite in front of all of you. Because this we have seen done time and time and time again, and it's heartbreaking, and it's tough to rebound from those things. And so as we look at this, we have to begin to recognize, let's not think succession, let's think sharing immediately in the present tense. Sharing versus succession. Jesus gives gifted people to the local church, and here's why. Paul says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This word equip means to be fully qualified and prepared for an assignment, a mission, or a task. Think of professional sports and think of the holistic leadership approach that they have. It's not just a general manager. It's not just a manager. They have trainers. They have physicians. They have equipment managers. They have research and developers. Like, they have a holistic commitment to make sure that when their team steps on that field, not only do they have proper attire, but they have proper equipment. That they had been prepared all week, whether it was an ice bath after practice to a meeting for this, to whether it's a massage after this, to whether it's physical therapy after this. They have a holistic leadership team that is focused in the one area of education, experience, and expertise that are speaking into and shaping all so they can go out and perform for 48 minutes or 60 minutes or nine innings and then come back in order to then be ministered to by the holistic leadership team leadership teams with all these gifts present provide a holistic approach to leadership you never will lack vision you have truth and correction that's being communicated you have missional living that is becoming a normal rhythm and then you have the care and the instruction all by jesus's people not from one person So while the equipping is taking place simultaneously, so is the building up of the body of Christ. We know that the church is not a building of brick and mortar, but it's a body made up of the living stones that Jesus has saved, according to 1 Peter. The church Jesus is building is on the rock, according to Matthew 7, which is the content of his teaching, not just being heard, but being practiced. So equipping and teaching and doing is all what it takes So having self-awareness provides space for the normal pastor to be normal. It really does. We have the ability to pray, to watch, and see what Jesus does. Then we can be spirit led in equipping lay members into various leadership roles. But then we can also develop a leadership pipeline for those in the congregation that fit the biblical qualifications. And we can begin a pipeline, whether it's lay eldership or eldership that's on staff. We can develop that pipeline to see these giftings, not just in the church congregation, but in the circle of leadership As well. And when you have this level of self awareness, you don't view other men in the church as competition. They're complementary to what Jesus is doing. See, we're simply joining Jesus in the work that he started before we were even born. That's what we have to understand. Whether we're the planter or the pastor or the successor, we're joining Jesus in his work that began before we were even brought forth with our first breath on this side of our mother's womb. So how dare we approach ministry with an arrogance that it is ours, that it is mine, that these are my people. No, Hebrews 13, we will be accountable for those that we shepherded their souls. But the reality is, is that Jesus always is seeing, putting a plurality of leadership together in these microorganisms called the local church. And we have to see other men who are in those qualifications, not as our competition, But we have to lift them up, raise them from pupils to peers to pastors, who then we are even accountable to. And when we do this, and this level of self awareness is our rhythm, it leads to solidarity. Verses 13 and 14. Paul says there's actually a timeline for the work in equipping the saints. He says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the timeline that we're to do this, Is until every local church is completely full of mature Christians who are mature in their walk in Christ. Well, be encouraged, dear brothers. That ain't going to happen on this side of eternity. It's not. Because if the Lord keeps adding baptized members to our churches because of successful evangelism, Successful meaning the Holy Spirit does the supernatural work of regeneration, but we do the legwork of gospel proclamation and relationship building, right? And paradigm shifting in the rhythm of our family relationships. Like as we do that and the Holy Spirit then does regeneration, Jesus is going to keep adding to our numbers, which means sinners, saints who are now at best immature. So they need a process of maturation. Maturity in the faith, like life, is only gained As we endure through hardships, James 1, 2 through 5, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, normal pastors actually set the tone of response for the entire church when a time of suffering comes. I received a good yet swift rebuke from my wife. And I want to make it seem like when we first got married, this was like two months ago, all right? So this is, the wound is still fresh. And I remember when I was frustrated over something, like my son, he has ADHD, and he has a couple other special needs. And I just, one time I was just frustrated, I was tired, and he just began to throw a fit, man. And I just got like, oh, like frustrated and irritated. And Alicia, my wife, just pulled me to the side, and she was like, you know, you're the leader of the house, and when you respond with frustration and anger and negativity visibly in front of the children and I, you set the whole tone for the whole house to go in this direction, which is opposite of spirit-filled living. And I'm like, who are you? Like, <laughs> holier than thou? Like, I'm thinking of every cliche I want to throw at my wife. And she's a hood chick, so I know she can take it. But she also holy, so I know she ain't going to fake it, and she's going to come right back at me. And so I was so convicted and I'm like, man, I don't want to hear that right now. But I needed to hear it in that moment because leadership sets the tone. So normal pastors, how we respond to seasons of suffering, seasons of frustration, seasons of nothingness, the mundane where there's no growth, only sowing, only watering, no fruit bearing, little grass at best, like we're frustrated. We set the tone in our response. So. If solidarity often comes through suffering, then we as normal pastors need to take heed to James. He says, to count it all joy, which doesn't mean be superficially happy and romantic, right? Don't look at the world through rose-colored lenses. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, is take a step back and assess what's really going on. And then begin to recognize, you know what? Praise be to God that this trial is here because Jesus is still working on me. and Jesus. Wants me to mature. Now, that ain't how I respond all the time. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. Don't get it twisted like, oh, that boy, no, I'm not. I'm the opposite. I'm like, dang, Lord, give me a break. And then I'm reminded, you know, your brothers and sisters in Pakistan, they would love to have this trial. And I'm like, ah, that's right. Your brothers and sisters in the global south who don't have the sacred text, they would not say it's too hard and life is too busy to open up the word of God today. They relish to memorize the Word of God because they can't have it in front of them. And you're complaining about this? And I'm like, I don't like meeting trials. But if this is the only way that maturity is gained is to go through so you can grow through, then I have to recognize when you meet trials of various kinds, the word when means you're going to have a common knowledge of a diversity of attacks. And often they come almost simultaneously like waves in the middle of a tide, just bam, 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 bam. And right before you can say, Lord, what next? Then you get hit with something else. What well, he says when you meet, this word meets carries the idea of a familiar face that you consistently see. Moving to Los Angeles, born and raised in Kansas City, grew up in Wyandotte County. We got traffic on I-70 between 3.30 and 4, right? Like, that's, that's traffic in Kansas City. They I moved to Atlanta. In Atlanta, they don't know what they're doing. It's an accidental big city. They don't even know what's going on. Six million people swoop inside of, like, well, we got 4.35. They got 2.85. So six million people run into inside of, like, a 4.35. Then they all dip out, right, as soon as work gets out. Makes no sense. You sit on the freeway for, like, an hour and a half. Well, that prepared us for Los Angeles. Because when we got to L.A., like, me and my homie Carlos, he's from L.A., I was like, oh, we're going to go to this... Rosedale's Barbecue. It's my favorite barbecue joint growing up. So we're at the airport at KCI, and I'm like, we got to go all the way down. He's never been to Kansas City, so I'm like, we got to go to Southwest Boulevard, and I'm like, it's 17 miles. L.A. standard, we're like, dang, that's an hour and a half, bro, at best. At best with a carpool lane. And I'm like, oh, 27 minutes. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, bro. So now imagine people that transplant to Los Angeles. You can tell them because... We know, living in L.A. for two and a half years, I ain't got white knuckles when I drive no more. Because I know whenever I leave the crib, traffic is waiting for me like, what up, dog? Like, it's just, that's just the culture. When your commute to work is an hour or under, that's a praise break. Because anything above that is like, all right, got to grind and hustle. So when people are not from Los Angeles... They hit traffic and you can see them looking at their app and white knuckles and people from L.A. are crocheting like, oh, boy, you're going to get used to this. Like, you're going to learn today. Like, Like, everybody in L.A. know. Don't be surprised. It's traffic everywhere. James is saying the same thing. James is saying, be like an Angelino when they treat traffic. It don't catch me off guard and ain't going to ruin my day. I just plan accordingly and be like, now I can listen to my podcast. Now I can hear the word of God read because I got three hours on the freeway today. It's all good. I'm going to make the most of it. James is saying, have that attitude. Don't be surprised when gossip and slander hit you. Don't be surprised when they leave the church quietly. Don't be surprised when people surface with false allegations. Don't be surprised when their salvation is proven to not be genuine. Don't be surprised when the enemy comes with you with thoughts of depression. Don't be surprised when your wife gives you no feedback about the sermon. Don't be surprised when people don't praise your every decision. Don't be surprised by these things. Why, why? You should expect it as a believer. He says when we meet trials, the word trials actually was used to show the purity of a precious metal. My pastor growing up would always tell us about the silversmith who was asked by a young man, how do you make silver and how do you make these ornaments? And he put this old nasty rock on this spoon and he fired up his oven and he threw the spoon in there. It had a long handle and he left it in there. Then he pulled it out and he left it in there, pulled it out. And he repeated the process for a while till the young man got frustrated. And the young man was about to leave and the silversmith said, oh, no, 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 it's done. He said, now I can pour it and mold it. And the young man was like, how do you know it's done? And he said, all the impurities have been melted out when I can see my reflection perfectly. When I see my reflection in it, all the impurities are out. Now it can be molded into whatever I want to make it to be. This is what the trials do. The fiery trials purge the carnality. They purge the unbelief. They purge the sinfulness out of us so the Father can see his reflection in us. And if normal pastors... Are the ones that God is leveraging through trials, and God the Father looks and sees His reflection in the way that we're responding, then imagine what the laity will respond like as they're enduring trials as well. See, Paul says that the more mature we are, the more of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we will live out. In the Texas State Capitol building in Austin, there is a picture hanging of James Butler. Bonham. James Butler Bonham died before modern photography was ever created. There is, known, known, there is no known portrait of him. No drawing. No nothing. But there's this picture of him hanging in the Texas State Capitol Building in Austin. And it's like, well, if there was, nobody knows how the brother really looked, then who is that? Well, the dude in the picture was actually his nephew that the family said was almost like his identical twin. You see, there's no known portrait of Jesus. I I know the dude with the perm and the soft lips and all that. That's not Jesus, all right? His resurrection and ascension was before modern photography, all right? Cats weren't scrimshawing him on leaves back then. So there's no visible picture of Jesus. I hate to bust your bubble on the family Bible. That's not him. But what we have the closest thing is when his church responds maturely with solidarity through trials, then we're resembling our Savior, Jesus. Solidarity comes after we suffer well together. And the reason is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This phrase, human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes, actually speaks of a methodized system of deceit that actually is connected back to the father of lies himself, Satan, who is identified in Ephesians 6.11 as the one who operates with schemes against the body of Christ. Through Paul's writings, he's addressed the need for church leaders to protect the flock from wolves that will rise up from within. Remember Acts 20. So leading during such times of suffering provides solidarity that is not built around the personality or the charisma of a leader. It's built upon the word of God that is both proclaimed and practiced, not one or the other. So it's not about the individual that is proclaiming, but it's the reality of the word of God that will go forth, that will not return void. And when the word of God and truthfulness is not just preached, but practiced, not just from the pulpit, from the people, then we are giving a visible resemblance of our Savior, and then we will see this solidarity through suffering that leads to the pathway of maturity. Normal pastors don't create or participate in systemic human cunning that is employed through deceitful schemings. We don't tamper with the Word of God. We don't add foreign ingredients to it. We don't take away half of it and leave the people hanging. We want to dive into the Word of God and take what is there and feed it to the people. I don't know if you remember the movie, The Sixth Sense. There was a scene in this movie where this stepmother was poisoning her stepdaughter, and the daughter put a video camera behind these books, and the stepmother brought this soup, and she took out this pine saw, and she poured the pine saw, which is a cleaning agent that has toxins in it, and she would pour a little bit of pine saw into every bowl of soup that she would feed her stepdaughter so that over the course of time, her stepdaughter never got better. She always remained sick until eventually she died. From this long term food poisoning from her stepmother. This is a vivid picture of what it means to practice human cunning when we add foreign ingredients that are toxic to God's word and we're handing it out to people and they're having a form of godliness under the assumption that they're good with God when they have denied the power of the gospel because they've never been introduced to the risen Lord, Christ Jesus. So they have a form of Christianity, but they don't have Christ. That's what human cunning produces, and it leads people further into deception while they're already dead rather than giving them the hope of life that is only found in the loving arms of Christ. So maturity is gained through suffering, and leadership sets the rhythm for the response to suffering. And when we suffer together, A solidarity is produced in both leadership and laity. And when this solidarity is centered on the truth of God's word, a pathway towards sustainability is the result. And that's our final point. He says in verse 15, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love is not saying the right thing the wrong way. It's not. A lot of us can say the right thing, the right doctrine, but the wrong way and with a wrong and impure heart with tainted motives. Being right is not always the right thing. The reality of what we see, it's about coupling truth with compassion and empathy and, dare I say, long-suffering. Jesus modeled this perfectly. Case in point, Peter. Seriously, just think about Peter. From the first time he met Jesus on the lake of Gennesaret, So after the ascension and all the issues that Peter had, Jesus never quit on Peter. He faithfully rebuked him from get behind me, Satan. Even the father got in on rebuking Peter with the Mount of transfiguration when Peter equated Jesus to be equal with Moses and Elijah. Like, hey, let's get three tabernacles, it's lit. And the father's like, hey, that's my son. Listen to him showing a distinction. Don't compare my son with Moses and Elijah. They actually pointed to the coming of my son. This is God incarnate, bro. Peter got rebuked by Jesus, got rebuked by the father. Like, And guess what? Peter finished his race. Peter's actually an encouragement. He's an encouragement to normal pastors like us. Because sometimes we get foot and mouth disease, not the legit thing with the pimples and everything, but we put our foot in our mouth many, and many times. And if our wives were here, they'd be like, "Mm mm-hmm, amen. Like, you know, But I praise God that, man, Jesus loves us enough to couple truth and love with long-suffering and compassion. It's a delivery system of love and care. It's not just to make somebody feel dumb, but it's to see somebody restored, somebody humble, somebody forsaking the arrogance that they once had. It's allowing their character to catch up with the content that they know theologically. It's that process when it's frustrating, when all they want to talk about is dispensational premillennialism. And you're like, bruh, it's homeless people over here. Like, we'll talk about that later. Like, man, let's feed these people, bro. It's those kind of things that we got to be patient. We got to be loving. But at the same time, we got to have the balance because you can't withhold truth and only give love. And and you can't withhold love and only give truth. It's got to be both and. we got to dissolve the false dichotomy and say it's both ands. Thomas Constable says the church that stresses both truth and love will produce spiritually mature and Christ minded Christians. Growing in every way is a holistic call. It means maturity in every area of our lives, not just theologically Some of our people need to learn how to balance their budget. Some of our people need to learn what disposable income does not always have to go on your food or your entertainment. People need to learn what sexual ethics really is in this day and age. People need to know that there are legit addictions that they need to be freed from. People need to recognize that the gospel speaks to their work ethic. They need to see that Jesus saved the whole of them, not just their theological system. They have to see how the gospel saturates every nuance of their life, their past, their present. And their future, and in the local church, this is the perfect place for this to be done because Jesus purchased this, every single one of us with His blood, according to Ephesians one seven. So we have to stop treating Jesus like a hotel guest and allow Him to recognize, and we recognize that our heart is His home, and He is doing the process of an extreme makeover, progressively through this process that we know is sanctification. And if He's doing it in us, He's doing it in every believer. So we need to respect the holy spirit's ministry and the work of sanctification in other believers presence in our local church this is where the frictions and divisions come in when we won't overlook offenses or we won't confront sin like we have to learn to be sensitive to the spirit enough to love our brother and sister to go to them with love and grace and truth and say let's work through this rather than awkwardly giving each other the side eye when we're together let's sit down let us reason Let us open up our hearts and see what our stories are so that we can come to the common cross and we can forgive and we can move forward. Imagine what it looked like if the local church led this type of restoration and it's not a government-funded project in the local school system. Like, think through this. In addition to this, he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As I close, I I love the analogy of a body when we talk about the church versus community. And it's just purely semantics. So if your church has community in it, I'm not saying, oh, you're Satan. I'm not saying that. What I want to say is I think the analogy of the local church being a body, it's more intimate. Because people can live in a community. I've lived where I live for the past two and a half years, and I don't know every single neighbor on my street. To be fair, there's 40 houses on this side of my block, and there's 40 houses on that side of my block. So there's 80 houses on the block, right? I don't know everyone, but it's easy to live in a community and still be in isolation because all I have to do is wave as I go in and come out of my door to go to my car or go in my garage. I can live in a community and not participate. I can have a whole secret life. I can run a sex ring out of my house if I want to. And that's what happens when people get busted while living in community. So that's the phrase, hey, let's be in community, let's be in community, let's be the body. The reason is, is I'm recovering from pneumonia. Like, I'm okay, though. I'm on, I've been out in my for weeks. So I don't want y'all to think, I can't cough or nothing or shake that brother's hand. I'm good, I'm straight. If I wouldn't, my wife wouldn't let me be here. So I'm recovering from pneumonia. And the thing about a pneumonia is, Even though it was my respiratory system that was infected, all of the other systems in my body were affected. All of the other systems in my body began to try to work together, even though they weren't infected, to assist with what was going on in my respiratory system. You see, when one part or one system of the body shuts down, the whole body feels it. We can live in community, and if somebody doesn't pay rent, the rest of the community may not feel it. It's up to that person to say, hey, I need assistance. But when my body begins to shut down or something is wrong, if I hit my thumb with a nail, my head hurts. Like, now I'm short of breath. Like, all these things start happening because the body shares its pain. It shares the sense of joy. And when I begin to look at this text, and I'm like, Jesus keeps speaking of the body The reality is, man, is that when we, as normal pastors, have these giftings that are present, we're self-aware, we're suffering, people are contributing, the moments that the body starts hurting, whether it's a miscarriage, whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's the process of infidelity and recuperating and restoring someone, whether it's a new family that moves into the local body, what, whatever the issue is, good or bad or mundane, what you begin to see is that the body rallies together. And what I began to see and I experienced was that when I was down, people brought us food. They watched our kids so that my wife could rest and I could rest. And the body was being the body. And what's amazing is it's not because, oh, that's Pastor Damon, because I've seen them do this regularly without any prompting. When one of our sisters was down from a surgery where she could not get out of bed for six weeks, the people of God mobilized without leadership telling them to, to have a meal train, to take up an offering, to love them, to pick up the kids and take them to schools, take them to daycare, to stand watch. Like you begin to see the people of God take upon the burdens and personify the Romans 12, where we weep together and rejoice together, where we seek to live at peace together. Like you begin to see these things and what's happening, Jesus is building his body because there is a culture of empowerment for people to step in. And they recognize that my ministry to the church is not trying to be the next preacher because all I can do maybe is drive people from point A to point B, and that is providing a ministry to this family who is down during this time of need. And people begin to recognize, I am a gift sent by Jesus to this church. And the leadership is sharing the responsibility of the work of ministry with me, and I am included. And so when we follow this suit, the future leaders of the church may already be at your church. They don't need to sit online for 15 years waiting. They should have ministry broken off and shared with them now. When we're not thinking succession, we're thinking sharing. Why not share with them now the work of ministry? Become self-aware and build a team with people that are strong where you were weak so you can focus in your strength. Suffer well during the hard, challenging seasons and watch Jesus form a solidarity within the body that you could never manufacture just with good preaching and watch Jesus produce sustainability because if he decides to move you on to another assignment, that local church is going to be just fine because although Jesus moved you on, Jesus has not moved on. And he will send another gift to that church to help keep the normalcy of maturation present, even though he has assigned you somewhere else. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have had. I pray that you would contextualize these thoughts and ideas, Father God, to where we are, and you would harmonize our hearts, Father God, with your desire to see local churches full of saints who are mature and seasoned. I pray that you would preserve our local churches and allow us, Lord God, to not think succession, but rather to think sharing. And I pray that we would embrace the gifts that you have already sent, and may we allow them to be empowered to do the work of ministry as you have equipped us to make them fully ready and capable in doing so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.